Hello and welcome to Pedagodzilla, where we pull apart pieces of pedagogic theory, research and observation, and then understand them through the lens of lovely good old geeky pop culture. TV, books, films, comics, games, the whole shebang. This episode will answer the question, does Neo really experience experiential learning in the Matrix? I'm Mike, I'm a guy with a microphone. And I'm Mark, I'm a guy with a PhD. Uh, and we're both learning designers at The Open University. <laughs> sure are. Part one, the question. So let's break down our question. Uh, the Matrix, what's The Matrix? Okay, so The Matrix, the franchise, is a series of films, um, trilogy. Uh, it's also a couple of really good comic books and also an animated movie as well. well a series of animated shorts. Yes, in a single movie. compiled into an anthology, yes. The imaginatively um, named Animatrix. Um, so also The Matrix is, what The Matrix is within The Matrix franchise is um, an artificial construct that all humans are wired into and in which uh, humans can take over and have some kind of agency within it if they know that they're within The Matrix. And there's also a viral program in there, which is gradually taking it over. And it's also really shouldn't be listened. We should have put a spoiler alert on this because ah, oh, that was it's it's a good fifteen years ago. This came I out. I guess, now. but halfway through, all of this is unre is revealed. So you go through the first half of the movie, thinking maybe almost the first half, thinking that what you're seeing is actual reality, and then suddenly all your perspective shifts, and you realise that what was going on before was virtual. And then you're in actual reality, which is all a bit shite because that's um, because robots have taken over the world and they're using humans as batteries. Yes, and we should clarify that for this uh, this episode, we're going to be focusing mostly on the first movie, uh, just because it's the best one it by best a one. long stretch. It's also weirdly the only one of the trilogy where Neo actually does any learning. Okay, oh, actually no, where Neo does any well structured learning, I should say. His agency is robbed in the second and third movie. Sure, although there are references that we that might crop up. There are, they, they may, they may well, they may well be. Just uh, because, um, yeah, because I mean, I still think the second and third one are they enjoy. I enjoyed watching them. Oh, absolutely, they're just good not as much. Roms. Yeah, but they're just not as good as the first one. So Neo, uh, the guy we'll be focusing on uh, for this question, uh, his real inverted commas name is uh, Mr. I think John Anderson. Uh, it's definitely Mr. Anderson because that's referred to a lot. Of Mr. Anderson. By, uh, by Agent Smith, um, and how he yeah, comes to realise that the world around him isn't as real as he thought. Yes, he took um, the red pill. He took the red pill and then ultimately comes, to, returns to the Matrix as a, sort of an enlightened ass-kicker, mm -hmm. um, and, then, and then beats up uh, robots and computer programmes in order to start humanity on the first step towards freedom. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that pretty much summarises it all, really. Oh, and uh, Neo is Keanu Reeves. The, the internet darling. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's about it, really. Yeah. Um, it's also got, um, uh, yeah, so Morpheus is another key character. He's the uh, mentor process throughout the whole thing. And Trinity is the other part of the three main. Somebody who's already inducted into the whole process and then also teaches Neo about some of the steps. And then there are also people that once we get out of the Matrix, we see the people, the crew who are on this sort of submarine who also help with the whole teaching process and they're also uh, sometimes going to the matrix as well yeah there's probably an interesting demonstration the community's practice of their communities of practice model in there somewhere well i guess so yeah we've already done that one though. but we've already done that one let's not <laughs> let's not retread old ground oh yeah. okay so we should probably also talk about uh, experiential learning okay so um to summarize in a sentence do you want to have a great summarizing this in a sentence 
I'm give you the one sentence limit for it. Uh, okay, I wasn't prepared for that, but um, I've got something. But okay, it's go on then. I, I, no, I'll give it a go, and then you give it a go. Okay, so um, no, I can do it in two sentences. So, first of all, generically, experiential learning is only what it says on the tin, which is it's basically it's learning based on the learner's experience. So it's all learner-centered, and it ties in with the whole constructivist uh, side of things, which is that you know going off and doing your own thing and learning through doing that. However, there's a more specific side which actually is very structured and builds in reflection as a key step in order to make the learning a lot more highly focused and a lot more structured. I used the word structured twice in that second sentence, but we'll let that go. Yeah. Anything else you wanted to add to that? No, no, not at all. Okay. I, think, I think I had uh, I had essentially the same. It originated as in the model, what we're going to be looking at today, uh, from a Mr. David Kolb back in the 70s. Um, but as much as anything else, um, as with most pedagogic models, uh, it's not something that he so much invented as he kind of named the key elements of it. Mm -hmm. People had been using the model in either, sort of, I'm going to say unknowingly, but people had been using it in various guises for forever. Um, and some of the research I did uh, led me down the path to Aristotle. Oh, really? Okay, it goes back further than I was aware of. There. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, apparently um, Aristotle articulated some of the, um, some of the bits and pieces of it. Uh, way back in the BCs. Oh, wow. The guy that um, Kolb particularly lifted it from was a guy called Levine, who was using it as a kind of engineering feedback model. Uh -huh. And it does actually map that quite well. But then you can see lots of things that actually might map very closely to Kolb's theory. There's a Dolzvein who did storytelling model, which is you, tell a, you make up a story, you tell it, you get audience feedback, and then you think about how you could change it. If you actually wrap that into a cycle, that becomes an experiential learning cycle as well. So there's lots of models that actually by tweaking it only very slightly become um, experiential learning cycle. Yeah, and that's some of the things. So we've got the, um, the kind of the key elements of it here, but I, there's something you'll probably notice when we're going through them is that they do actually relate to stuff that we've been talking about in other episodes. And this is back to that thing of there being no like one correct model for, uh, for learning and teaching. They're all uh, naming and using different bits of the same set of truths, essentially. Yeah. Um, so the key elements are of, of Kolb's um, experiential learning model are concrete experience, reflective observation, abstract conceptualization, and active experimentation. So to break those down a little bit, concrete experience, that's nice and straightforward. That is your hands-on experience of doing something. So it's trying doing things, getting your hands dirty. So for instance, I mean, just this afternoon, a good example of that is I couldn't get the microphone to work. We were struggling with that for quite a while. And then I realized that my headphones were turned way down. So turned up the volume. That's a concrete experience. You can't get the microphone to work. Maybe it's your idiot part. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Mike, but I was, we were struggling for ages. I thought, oh, look at this. It's turned down right to the bottom. Okay, so that's a concrete experience. We reflect on that. That was a really, really stupid thing to do. Which was your effective observation. Yes. So that's where you look at what you've done and you reflect on it and you go to yourself, what could I have done differently? What would I do differently next time? What worked well in that? What, what didn't? Yeah. Um, the active conceptualization is where you go off and you, uh, based, the, based on those experiences, you go off and think about wider perspectives, which perhaps doesn't work so well here because it's really, really, there's nowhere else you need to go in order to draw an experience to know that you need to turn the volume up if you're trying to listen to something. But there could be, you know, in most situations, it's like, well, like for instance, the mic itself, the mics we're using, Lavalier mics, 
Is that Monsieur correct? and Madame Levalier, that yes, is correct. Yes, uh, which, um, which, so therefore you would think, well, okay, we're having problems with the mics in that every, we have to lean forward to uh, record what we're doing and that doesn't mean that we're relaxed. So then Mike goes off and does a bit of research and thinks, oh, we could do with these lapel mics. And so therefore we then start incorporating lapel mics into our practice. Yeah, I mean, if anything, so we're actually skipping ahead of stage there. Because mm-hmm. that's going straight into active experimentation, I would say. I'd say we're this uh, using the lapel mics for the first time in a recording is probably active experimentation. So we're taking our concrete experience. Mm-hmm. Um, we've reflected on the bits that worked, the bit that didn't work. Sometimes we suffer from a bit of echo, and the two of us uh, sharing the one microphone can get a bit cosy mm-hmm. in what's already quite a small room. Yes, knees touching, awkward. <laughs> uh, abstract conceptualization. So we define the characteristics um, of what we're looking at. So we go, okay, so what are the key bits to this? It's the mic. Um, it's our space in the room. Those are kind of the uh, the bits that we choose to focus on as part of our next phase active experimentation. We go out, we get uh, these new microphones, we have a bit of a faff around trying to get them to work, uh, experiment around, try the new approach. We'll probably go back to the beginning of the loop again because now that we're recording, we're back in the concrete experience. This will then lead on to reflection, back into conceptualization. And so it's kind of, it's a, it's not a, a linear model, this. It's a circular model, I guess, is the important thing to note. Uh, I know. I think the key thing you picked up there is that uh, there's no key point at which is the best place to start. So you could start with the active experimentation, and normally you might try that, and then you go around and you, uh, and then you, re- you, you, uh, you redo it, and then you retry it again. So it's actually helical rather than spiral, Michael. Oh. <laughs> I see. <laughs> But there we go. So yeah, so um, Google's healer. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so you just go around and around and around and then gradually improving each time around. And I think this is why perhaps people don't notice it as a learning model is because there is something natural about that is that, you know, in your daily life, these are the sorts of things you would hopefully be doing. If you're learning from experience, that's how you learn as you reflect on it. You might not always go out and do a bit of research to think about how you might want to change it, but ideally you should because as other people have had these experiences and therefore you want to incorporate that when you're coming up with a new ex- experimentation, a replanning, and then you'll sort of, um, and then you'll, uh, and then you'll go around again. So it's kind of plan, do, reflect, think, redo is yeah. basically all it is. As it's, there's that famous phrase, uh, if at first you don't succeed, do it reflect on it, have a think about it, do it again. <laughs> oh, wait, no, try and try again, yeah, but yeah. with reflection and yeah. conceptualization. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, a famous phrase. Really. Yeah, that's that, that, well done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think that's, we've covered um, okay. the, uh, I think we've unpacked the, uh, the individual elements of the question. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's have a bash at answering the question itself. Okay. Part two, the answer. Okay, so returning to our question, does Neo really experience experiential learning in the Matrix? I think within this, we've, uh, we've had a little sort of think about it, mm-hmm. and we think there's two questions to answer in, in this one question. One is, can you experience experiential learning in the Matrix as a virtual space? And the other one is, does Neo utilize the experiential learning model? within the Matrix, or within, I should say, the first movie of the Matrix. Okay, we'll take the f- second one first, shall we? Yeah, I'd say so. Okay, that's, right. that's, that's probably the one that okay. we're going to disagree on the least. <laughs> sure, okay. So, uh, this, the, the thing that made me think, oh, the Matrix might be a good example of this, is a lot of the way he learns to start with is that when he's out of the Matrix and sitting in the little submarine, and he's wired up to this teaching machine, and then I think it's Cypher plugs him into this thing and just says, like... Um, 
he's, he's got all these programs and he just downloads them straight into his brain and then kind of goes, whoa, I know Kung Fu and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, that's not experiential learning. It only becomes, a, that's just the straightforward didactic jug mug. It goes from this place to this place. And as you're saying, like there's, there's all one set of learning. I would say probably there's two quite discrete sets of learning. And that's one of them, which is goes from the here to here uh, without the active participation of the learner. And then the other one is the active participation of the learner. So, and that experiential activity-led learning, active learning, all those sorts of things. He then exhibits those when he goes into that training space with Morpheus. Yes. And now let's break this down a little okay. bit more against the model. Okay. So he goes into the training space with Morpheus. Mm -hmm. He's just done... In fact, it's probably worth saying that he starts out with the lady with the red dress scenario. Oh, yeah. So uh, he gets put into one of the sort of first sort of tame scenarios where yeah. they've got a, it looks like he's in the real world and he's surrounded by people. Uh, and I think he turns around to look at the lady mm -hmm. with the red dress. Mm -hmm. um, and then upon close inspection, turns around again and bam, it's an agent and ready yeah. to shoot him and, and he's failed. But this is his first concrete experience. Mm -hmm. This is true. This is his first trained concrete experience within this space. Mm -hmm. uh, he then goes into back into the space with Morpheus where he commences his training. And I think one of the first things that he does is they're like, oh, he looked at the lady with the red dress. Mm. It's the little reflection on that. Um, would you say that's a, a fair? Yeah, he's reflecting on that as experience. And then I suppose then he maybe incorporates that into his practice. And then sort of, and then, but there's a reflection thing. And there's a, there's a few steps like that because then they start fighting and then Morpheus beats him. And Morpheus then asks something like, why did I just beat you? And then Neo says, well, you're too fast. And then Morpheus says, do you think that my muscles or my speed have anything to do with my being able to beat you here in this space? Oh, well, let's stop us right there because yeah. that is reflection. Yes. How did I beat you? You're too fast. That's also conceptualization. Mm -hmm. So he's honing in on the specific concepts, which were, you know, uh, the things to improve the barriers to mm -hmm. learning in that regard. So yeah, just to um, and yeah, and the then model. when he says that actually my muscles, my speed have no effect on on how my performance within this space, that's active conceptualization. Yeah. So he's gone from that reflection. Oh, um, you know, like you beat me. That's my direct observation of what's gone on. You beat me because you're faster than I am. No, I'm not. It's because I can manipulate the space within this. And then they go back into it, and then they're a bit. Then he's a bit better at fighting. Which is um, experimentation, active experimentation. Yeah, that's the second round of that helix. Yeah, um, and he goes through this. Um, so I think he goes through this once or twice in the uh, the tame training mm -hmm. scenario, and then to a degree we see it exhibited um, a little later on in the film, where we have that fabulous, um, not quite like the the skyscraper heist scene. Oh yeah, the yeah. iconic one with the pillars and everything. Yeah. yeah. And I think the crucial bit of that is um, the fight at the top with Agent Smith, where he gets shot and gets his ass whooped. Yeah. And does that happen? Also, there's this kind of like little kind of wise Buddha type kid who say, who's sitting there bending a spoon with his mind. Yes. And he says, this only works because when you remember the simple fact, there is no spoon. And again, that's like, well, how do you spending that spoon? So that's observation. Um, well, it's because it's not here, and it's like there is no spoon, is the active conceptualization. And so then when he's going into trying to beat Agent Smith for real in the, the final thing, he reads, that's, his, that's his like, you know, spinach is the <laughs> level up in, you know, as a, as a trope, that's the level up in badass moment, is it's like there is no spoon, and then that's it, and then he beats him because he realizes there is no spoon, it's all in his head, yeah. really, and he's able to. Yeah. So I think. Does Neo use the, well, can you say that the experiential model is used by Neo in 
you know, in learning how to kick computer programs bums in the matrix? The answer is yes. Mm -hmm. However, there is a wider debate about experiential learning and whether or not it needs to be in a inverted commas real space. So is by sheer dint of the fact it's existing in a virtual environment, does that uh, invalidate the experiential element? Does that make it instead more of a simulation, more a simulated space? We both have strong opinions on this. Oh, is it? An are they different opinions? Uh, I get the feeling that they're not, but I get the feeling they're coming at it from different perspectives. Okay, so do you want to say why they're not then? Okay, before I, I tell you that you're wrong. Okay, well, <laughs> no, so I'm just kidding. before Mark and I fall out um, and never record another podcast <laughs> together ever again. I, as a person what plays a lot of video games, or at least used to play a lot of video games, I'd like to play more. I wish, I'm one of those few people who sits there at the end of, I'm going to be on my deathbed and be like, man, I wish I'd played more video games. Unlike all of those people who were like, man, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, that's, that should be my, my dying words. I think that's what I'm going to do. You're gonna just say to really wind everybody up. It's like, <laughs> oh, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. Cause every, just, to say, just to be really, really awkward. <laughs> anyway, no, I don't wish I'd spent more time in the office. I wish I'd spent more time doing podcasts, actually. Oh, me too. Mm. Anyway, oh. oh. <laughs> And playing video games. Because that's too cheesy. That's staying in. <laughs> Your shame is staying in. Um, so, I personally think, as a person who plays a lot of video games, I use that experiential learning model a lot in the games I play. I play a lot of competitive mm. multiplayer games. And I think the skill I'm, I'm learning, the thing I'm learning, isn't how to, for example, uh, in Overwatch, how to be uh, a high-octane, colourful superhero uh, shooting people in the real world. I'm learning how to do that in a virtual world. I'm learning how to go around and sort of, you know, fight people online and have a great time with that and get better at it. I think in that regard, um, my experience is perfectly legitimate. I think subsequently, uh, Neo's experience, all of the relevance of his experience is couched in this virtual world in the first film. Mm -hmm. We'll ignore the second and third for the time being for that weird kind of Jesus thing that happens, particularly in the third. Because it's couched in that virtual world, I think it's a perfectly legitimate piece of experiential learning because he's learning how to interact in a virtual environment yeah. and he's doing it in a virtual environment. Therefore, uh, it matches and is appropriate. Oh, yeah. Well, there we go. Yeah. Well, you... I've got a book on experience. I've written the plug <laughs> <laughs> experiential learning in virtual worlds. I mean, I would say they are. OK, so everything you learn experience wise is appropriate to a particular scenario. So this is true. So, so stuff you would learn in a virtual world might not be necessarily applicable to the physical world. But, but that's true of moving from any scenario to any other scenario. So what I learn in a podcasting booth might not be the, exactly the same sort of thing as you would, the, the, the skills you learn when you're, I don't know, driving a car or down the pub or whatever. And that's the thing, though, because we, before we started recording, I mentioned Euro Truck Simulator, which mm -hmm. is the most inexplicably popular computer game um, in which you drive a truck. And I mentioned that I didn't think that playing this would actually give you what you needed. Uh, as a sort of a learning teaching experience to drive a truck. Mark has a different opinion. Um, well, I think it, it, some of it does translate into the physical world. I mean, it's a matter of learning the different things. Uh, it's a good example of experiential learning project that I saw called the Swift Project that was at Leicester. And this was about um, doing um, genetic sequencing in a genetics lab. And this was all took place in Second Life. And um, basically, the problem they were having was that people could do the exact steps in the experiment and they could learn about how all the genome stuff worked and genetic sequencing or whatever but what they could never do was splice the two together so that whatever you so that as you were doing the steps in the physical in the physical lab you actually had an idea about how things are working 
conceptually as a sort of as a as kind of a, the abs, not the abstract, but you know what was really happening with the genes and stuff like that. So what they did in the Swift project was you go into this island in in Second Life, and um, this is Julie Salmon again and her team. And um, never salmon again. Yeah, yeah. Pod, podcast salmon. This is why she's a professor of education. Bloody hell! Well keeps, done, Jilly Salmon. Because <laughs> she keeps on grabbing up her team and all this sort of stuff. And so they basically have um, the steps. So the avatar goes up to this, and you have to remember to do certain things, otherwise you get error warnings and stuff. And those are basic safety stuff. But as you are doing the and the physical, the physicality of turning this machine on and turning this button on and all that, the, you didn't replicate, but what they did do is, here's this step, and as you're doing this step, a little animation appears above the apparatus to show you what's happening conceptually. So that is experiential learning. It's not exactly applicable to the physical world because you haven't learned how to operate the apparatus, but you've learned those steps in that you have to take place in order to learn how, to, uh, in order to kind of acquire the knowledge about what you're doing in the physical world is doing this thing to the genes at this particular time. And that is a brilliant example of experiential learning. It's not, ex and that's the difference between simul simulation and replication, is it's a simulation in that it takes elements of the physical world, maps them to the, the virtual environment, and then you do those steps as you're going through it, and then take that back when you're doing your actual gene sequencing. So there we go. So I, they're not exactly the same scenario, but then the stuff here I'm learning here that I will, could apply in other situations, like remember to turn up your volume of your headphones. <laughs> is quite, is, I mean, that's something that could be learned in lots of different environments. The, the issue I have is that people see them as entirely different kinds of learning experience in that, you know, you might learn about um, simulation learning and experiential learning as two different things, and they're not. They're the same sort of learning in fact, neurologically, they happen in the same part of the brain. If you look at World of Warcraft memories, memories of people who played World of Warcraft and their experiences there, and you look at the memories of the physical world, they, they occur in the same part of the brain. There is no distinction you, uh, between the way you process them and the way you memorize them, whether it's a simulation or whether it's the physical world. We should look at simulated learning in another episode. Okay, if you like. Yeah, I mean, I've got loads of examples. Just to give it a kicking, really, um, to see if it's, uh, we, can, we can see if it's different from experiential learning based on what we find out. Okay, yeah, yeah, and that could be, that could be very interesting. And also, we've not given anything a kicking for a little while. Um, <laughs> I think for old Barack, Rosenshine had, had the majority of our boots so far, and I feel it is somebody else's turn. Well, only because it's one set. I think also we gave Yoda a bit of a kicking at the same time, because we were saying that there's these two quite distinct principles about learning. And where they get, where anyone gets kicked is when you pick one to the whole, to the, to to the total exclusion of the, of the other. other. Yeah. And, so, and the thing about experiential learning, which is nice, is that you've got this very structured scaffolded approach. And what you can do if you're using it as a teaching tool is that particularly the reflection step, which I think is quite difficult yeah. for people, is that you can break that down and make that a lot more structured. So you're going, well, as you're reflecting, ask yourself this question. What did I learn from it? What did I find difficult? What did I, what will I do next time? As a, a well, that's more the next step. Well, but if you take people through those steps in a lot more structured, scaffolded way, it actually is a really effective way to learn in those sorts of environments. Yeah. So back to the question: mm -hmm. Does Neo really experience experiential learning in the Matrix? 
Yes, he does. Yep. And then the first que- bit of the question, which was, does this really count as experiential learning? I think I think I think that's all in there because yeah. doesn't he really experience? I think it's the really experience. Oh, really? Yeah, he really. He, he does. does really experience experiential learning. Yeah, it's if it's if um, yeah, it's whatever you experience virtually it is real experience, whether or not it's a real environment or not. It's a real experience, and so therefore it's just the same, really. Yeah, as proved in the third movie where he turns into Cyber Jesus. Yeah. Okay, so uh, practical tips for your own teaching. We've said it once, we'll say it again. Uh, the reflection stage, I think recognising that the reflection stage is an important part of not just this model, but teaching in general. Reflection and iteration, I think, are, um, are really important. Yeah, um, I think breaking down those, uh, those are four very nice steps which always work for not only lear- for, for informal learning, so the learning that you do on a day-to-day basis, like, oh, I really shouldn't have said that to those people. Oh, what have I learned from that? Okay, <laughs> keep your mouth shut next time or don't use that particular word. And then this, sort of this like, is actually Mark's next... day-to-day as well. <laughs> <laughs> Hour-to-hour, basically. But, I mean, we, I think we... Okay, on the one hand, that, that really helps you learn. But on the other hand, it actually helps with dealing with the fact that you've really, really just screwed up because you're thinking, well, I can go and learn from this. Oh, experiential learning. Oh, Kolb. And so, you know, it's like helps with the whole therapy and things like that. So you've got, so you got that process. If you can break that down for the learners so that you've actually set them a task which is, which is going to produce some learning, but then you also break down that this is how then you observe. So this is what the observation steps are. You can have reflection in action, which is as it's going on, you can make a tweet or whatever or make a note on your phone to actually record your experiences at that moment. And then there's a reflection on action, which takes place at a later stage, which you can then break down into a series of questions for the student. And then you can take them to process through active conceptualization, literature review, or talking to people, or just thinking about it more deeply, and then how to redo this, so replan, create a new plan for the next time round. And if you do that, and you've chosen the right sort of tasks for the students to do, that's a really powerful model, I think. And it, like I said, it's nice because it, it takes on both the hands-on, active, doing stuff, um, student-centered thing with the whole structuring the learning for students, taking them through a process, giving them some the proper questions to ask themselves, which is kind of teacher-centered, and those two things properly balanced is actually a really nice way to do things. I totally agree. I think it's one of those things as well where making the student aware of kind of the rubric, almost how it's mm. functioning, is really beneficial because it's such a simple model. Showing a person through those steps that, you know, this is what we're going to be doing and here's why. Making uh, that process clear, because I mean, for example, uh, we have uh, at work at the university uh, been looking at apprenticeships and mm. things, uh, of which uh, personal development planning is a is quite a big aspect, and a lot of that is teaching people how to um, articulate their own reflection um, and development using these sorts of models. And once you understand the basics of it, you can um, essentially, you know, you can refine how you apply it to your own life. If there was one kind of key term under which you could stick all of the improvements that you, anybody could do within their teaching that I think is probably missing from a lot, it's metacognition. <laughs> should, the, I the, should be able to say it. The one on. word. <laughs> the one word, the key phrase from this whole podcast, and I just, I just fluffed it. Metacognition. Okay? So it's being able to think about your thinking. And if you can actually teach students about how to think about their thinking and how to learn to learn, then you've actually, I think, achieved, you know, 50% of what they need to be able to do in their lives, really. Yeah. Okay, hopefully you'll edit out that particular fluff there. No, you're going to leave it in. Yeah, you bastard. <laughs>
Another thing I've learned is don't trust Mike. <laughs> cool. Well, I think we've covered everything. Yeah, and uh, without going off topic hugely as well, which is yeah. an incredible first. Bloody really. hellfire. I know. As, um, there's a lesson to be learned in here somewhere. Always ambush Mark at the last possible minute for recording an episode so he doesn't have time to think about it first. Yeah, that's a very good idea. That's, that was a problem <laughs> last time. Was that? So, thanks very much for listening. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, and through just about any podcast service, hopefully. Uh, we've uh, been listening on iTunes for a little while now, which means that hopefully uh, the feed will have propagated to all of your usual sources. Uh, if we're not available on one of your usual sources and you've still inexplicably managed to find us, do let me know uh, and I'll get in touch and, uh, and work out how I can add the service because um, I'm using a different propagation method to usual. Uh, propagation being how your RSS feed gets picked up by lots of different um, aggregates because uh, Mark's eyebrows were meeting in the middle. I just want to do my whoa again. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was I? Whoa. <laughs> if you'd like to get in touch, um, you can reach us at www.pedagodzilla.com um, and at our Twitter feed, at Pedagodzilla. If there's anything you'd like to uh, us to cover particularly, uh, let us know, really. You know, yeah, we're just kind of, yeah, we do requests. Um, we're currently just sort of traipsing through whatever strikes our interest as we go, uh, which is working quite well for us. But, you know, if you've got a particularly exciting one, do give us a shout. We love you lots, and we look forward to speaking to you again next time. Bye-bye. Mark does love you. I do. I do, really. <laughs> <laughs> bye-bye now. Okay, bye. Yeah. <laughs> you feel well-organized out. <laughs>